Hello, everyone, and welcome to the crux of the story. This is Gary Sheffer. I'm a professor of public relations at Boston University's College of Communication. My co-host, as always, is Mike Fernandez up in the chilly extremes of Canada, yeah. which I'll probably tell you about. He's the chief communications officer at Enbridge and a former BU professor. I also want to welcome uh, back, I don't think I mentioned Catherine last semester. Catherine DiMaria is my graduate assistant and here at Boston University and is the editor, producer, and smartest person on the podcast. So I want to welcome Catherine back for a second. She really runs the show. Yeah, absolutely. So, Mike, uh, it's good to be back. I'm a little rusty after our holiday hiatus in December and January. I, I spent mine in St. Bart's, you know, with uh, I'm a media celebrity uh, thanks uh, to, the, <laughs> to the crux now. You know, people recognize me. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, They recognize yeah. me in my living room. That's about it. Uh, um, um, how about you, Mike? How'd you, uh, you spend our month off? Well, Gary, for me, no celebrities. Uh, <laughs> uh, like many of our listeners, I spent uh, a great time uh, during the holiday season connecting with family. Uh, one thing that did happen, though, is uh, that we probably should take note of is the passing of Jose Antonio Urente. Uh, he was the founder and executive chair of uh, LLYC, formerly known as Yorente Cuenca. Uh, it uh, ultimately started as a uh, PR, strategic communications firm, doing lots of M&A work in Spain and Portugal. And then he and his partner decided to expand in Latin America, and they became the largest strategic communications firm in all of Latin America and throughout the Spanish-speaking world. Uh, unfortunately, Jose Antonio, who was a friend uh, and whom I worked for uh, for a period of time, even while I was at uh, Boston University as the uh, U.S. CEO for LLYC, uh, passed. Uh, it was a, a very sad uh, day for a lot of us. Uh, but, you know, he... He had a lot of breakthroughs in terms of the profession, including, you know, thought. We talk about thought leadership, uh, you know, in the context of U.S. marketing or in 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 world marketing. He was doing thought leadership in the Spanish language before it was a thing for many of us. Uh, so, uh, you know, he also to what we'll talk about today. Uh, you know, manage his share of crises and even crises with celebrities. <laughs> well, thank you, Mike. He truly was a pioneer and I know someone you admired greatly. Well, let's get back to celebrities and our guest, a celebrity on her own, Molly McPherson. You know, Molly, I think is really three people given everything <laughs> she has going on. Uh, Molly is an APR certified founder of Molly and Company, a crisis communications consultancy, hosts the weekly Indestructible PR podcast with Molly McPherson, and is author of the book Indestructible, Reclaim Control and Respond with Confidence in a Media Crisis. However, if you're one of her half million followers on TikTok, you know Molly as a celebrity PR whisperer as she is, was described in a recent Boston Globe profile. She's also a terrier, having earned a master's degree in public relations right here at Boston University, uh, has been a lecturer here at on the BU campus as well. 
after BU, Molly worked in the Crisis Cauldron, that is the Federal Emergency Management Agency, where she helped revolutionize the agency's comm strategy. We're going to talk to Molly about the changing nature of crisis management, and it really is changing almost day by day. Her social media breakthrough and how the heck someone does a podcast every week for five years without missing. Molly, welcome to the crux of the story. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hello, this is Gary Shepard. Hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Professor, it is my pleasure to be here with you. Wow, she sounds awfully impressive. You would never guess. <laughs> it's you. Oh, yeah, I am. You and me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it really is impressive. And, and there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, I want to start, though, uh, with your work at FEMA, because I did read a lot uh, about it. And since we're talking about crisis today and crisis management, uh, given that FEMA has the word emergency in its mm-hmm. title, it must have been an incredible place to learn about crisis management. I learned some of mine in government, working for two governors. What's the most important thing you learned about crisis management during your time at FEMA? Yeah, I was brought into the agency, you know, post-Hurricane Katrina, when the agency was dealing with a significant Mm -hmm. perception problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, back then, radio, television, newspaper, they were all, you know, the big mediums in terms of shaping public opinion. Uh, But at that time, you know, going into 2007 is when we had, you know, we already had Facebook, but now we had Twitter and people were slowly, uh, you know, getting on the social media website. So Mm -hmm. when I was there or on platforms, so when I was there, I was a PIO, I was a public information officer. I wasn't anyone special there at all. And I would hardly say that I revolutionized anything. However, it was a mixture of just my age, a Gen Xer. Uh, The first year I was at BU was the first year we had email at the school. And that's one of the first classes was how to how to get on the Internet and do a homepage, (laughs) which is incredible, you know, thinking about that back then. So I've always tracked internet and internet technology, how it related to media perception and PR. So when I was there, you know, my job working in individual assistance, we, you know, working with people, recognizing that people on the ground who were dealing with a disaster loved us, but the public, the press hated us. So it was in that gray space that I recognized that, you know what, there's room for us to take, to go into the digital realm and start shaping our own perception and reputation. Yeah. Super smart. Uh, Molly, welcome. You know, Gary's former boss at GE, Jeff Immelt, uh, told a gathering of communications and public relations professionals a few years ago at a, at a Arthur W. Page conference that all business management is today is crisis management. Do you agree with that assessment? Absolutely. And I think Jeff ML is in, in intimately familiar with the significance of perception. <laughs> you know, he... Gary, I think, has a few welts on his back. I know. I know. I could I can imagine. I mean, I remember all of that. I remember the transition from Jack Welsh um, over to ML. And I remember yeah. how rocky it was. And 
and what he had too was a perception problem and a trust problem. And of course, I mean, naturally the, the landscape was changing and yes. Jack Welch ran GE a little bit differently. Um, you know, and I love, and I will give him all credit when he talks about like strategic accounting and, and how he dances, you know, around the Jack Welch years that were there. Um, but really he was someone, I mean, in a headline branded as the guy ruined, you know, GE and, and part of it was just bad luck and timing and all of it, but he's absolutely right. A crisis can affect anyone from the external to the internal to the CEO themselves. Yeah. I'm going to cry a little bit. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to have to turn off the microphone here. For a minute. I know. I can imagine. I can imagine working. Yeah. There. I can yeah. imagine. It was, it was a great, you know, I had learned crisis in government, right? Cause you always mm -hmm. do in politics and government. Yeah. yeah. And, and we had so many, including Jeff's first day, really, on the job was 9-11. Yeah. And so sometimes you're lucky, you know, serendipitous in your career. You're sort of the right skills at the right time. And we, you know, it was 15 years, 16 years of that um, that seemingly never stopped. So that perspective from Jeff, I'm, I'm glad to hear you agree with. Oh, yeah. yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it also had to be, I mean... Uh, post-Hurricane Katrina um, and working through all of that just had to be an amazing learning laboratory for you. Well, you know, working in any type of government, whether it's state or, you know, federal, uh, you learn that it is a different environment than uh, corporate, you know, or the private sector. Uh, sometimes there are people there who are just there to be there. And then there are real kind of thinkers and movers there, too. But it does feel good like you're doing a duty, like, you know, you're serving, you yeah. know, you're in a, in a sense, yeah. you're serving your country, you're serving your state, you know, whatever it is. So I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed my time there. And I only left it. I wish. I was still there. It's just because of a, of a military uh, transfer, you know, out of uh, headquarters into the Boston region. Yeah. Now, fast forward to today, curious, given clients, given what you're seeing, what trends um, strike you as, 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 as being prevalent now in crisis consulting with regard to what are kind of the rules of the game today? And are companies, boards, and leaders themselves really prepared for kind of this highly volatile environment we find ourselves in today? That's a great question because not enough leaders ask themselves that very question. Uh, we are in a we are in a place right now where the the control, the opinion, the perception is in the hands of the public. You know, back in the you know the early two thousands, the mid two thousands, as we were when we were, you know, primarily legacy media and just kind of new social media, uh, the press still had control over perception and reputation. But now, business leaders need to understand that they have zero control of their reputation because it's all up to the public because of social media. It democratized public opinion in a way. Now, it's a double edged sword. It doesn't necessarily mean it's negative all the time. But I think. That the companies, the businesses, and the leaders who do not recognize the power of public opinion, and they dismiss social media users as, I, I'd always hear, you know, lazy millennials, and, I, and I'd have to tell them, uh, millennials now are in their late 40s, <laughs> by the way, you know, and Gen Z. So Gen Z now, <laughs> I think, is really determining how people consume media, and we need to, and companies and businesses need to keep up with that, as, as does leadership and boards. Molly, I'm teaching crisis again uh, this semester at BU. It's my favorite course. Um, you know, I can tell war stories, of course, um, yeah. 
But, you know, the thing I always start the course with these days is what is a crisis in this environment? The things that you and I and Mike grew up on hardly get a notice, you know, and, and I gave a presentation last week to some uh, business students and, and I talked about a big sort of forever chemicals settlement with DuPont. You know, that was a big like $5 billion settlement. Back in the day, that was something you paid attention to if you were a corporate communicator. I asked 200 MBA students if they had heard of this and it was recent and not one. So what we thought of as crises uh, traditionally, whether it's CEO pay, whether you paid taxes in the United States, et cetera, yeah. get much less attention in the environment you just described. So how do you determine, because it's important, it's not an academic discussion when you're responding, what is and is not a crisis today? Right, because now it's a cultural right. discussion. Mm. Uh, and you know, you're talking about the DuPont settlement. I mean, imagine when I talk about Hurricane Katrina, they don't, right? <laughs> they don't even know what that is. And also we're in a generation now where our seniors in college were the in utero kids yes. of 9-11. That's an important mark in history for me that I recognize. So you're absolutely right. The definition of a crisis is much different. I break it down into areas, and I definitely do this with all of my clients in my trainings as well. There's disaster communications, you know, when something happens outside of your control. But those disaster communications tend to reveal the fissures, either guidelines or processes or systems operations that you have, and they create the operational yeah. crisis. So I look at a PR crisis as truly an operational crisis, that something has failed, either in your control or not in your control. You could even be adjacent to a crisis, but you're still, you know, you're still going to be connected to it. So let me ask you now, uh, a jump to what you're doing on social media today. You, the Boston Globe, I mentioned, recently wrote a profile, I think it was on Christmas Day, it appeared, uh, about your burgeoning TikTok popularity for decoding, to use their word, celebrity PR and crisis strategy. It described your rapid fire comments on the latest chatter or crisis in pop culture, whether it's Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey or Lizzo being sued by her backup dancers. And the popularity of your videos has just exploded. Tell us about them and why you do them. I started on TikTok as a lurker, like most people do, and I was I was a later adopter, definitely. I, you know, coming. I started watching during the pandemic. People who hopped on, creators who hopped on during the pandemic, really benefit from that explosion, you know, on TikTok. But as someone who's always used social media in my practice, you know, for years my job was teaching C-suite leadership right. boards about social media, telling them the dangers and the threats and, and also the psychology of mm -hmm. victims, you know, people who mobilize and try and bring you down and create that crisis. That was really my niche. But that type of mobilization happens in popular culture and media culture. And I'll admit it, I'm a Gen Xer. I, I love media. <laughs> I love entertainment, celebrity, Oscars. I love all of it. So I really felt like I, in order to be a true practitioner 
and and stand by what I'm what I'm educating my clients on. I had to get on the app myself and try it. It was abysmal. Like I did not pay any attention to how I looked or, you know, what I was saying or any type of sales. Cause really you have to write or think of sales copy, you know, but people do look at me almost like a teacher, you know, like even though I do adjunct yeah. and, and work as a lecturer, sometimes they assume that I, you know, that I am a full-time professor, but I use it to teach. So celebrity is just yes. the device. That's just what I use as yeah. like the hook. But I'm always extracting practical public relations, communication, media relations, uh, theory and practice and tactics and put it out there. So I definitely have segments of the audience and I love the people who figure it out. Like I love the communicators who follow me and say, you teach me more. No offense, <laughs> professor. You teach me more than I learned in college. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know? But no, it has nothing. It's not so much me though, but it's the medium because I, when I first came on, it was only three minutes. So I have to encapsulate almost a a, a course, you know, like a, you know, a class into three minutes and now they've kind of extended it. So that's why it's just been a really remarkable thing for my career. What's one example you can give us and, and, you know, a celebrity crisis, there are so many of them. Um, that you thought was a good sort of story to do what you just described, teach about crisis management. Yeah. So I, I tend to do, you know, celebrities always get a lot of attention, but also trending stories. I'm really fascinated by the stories that start on social media and then they end up in the news. And so I'll give you Uh, one, two or one recent one. And it's very obscure, but if you're online, you would know about it. It's a small business, uh, a a minority business owner. She created baby clothes, a baby brand, it's called Kite Baby, okay? And she had an employee. She just onboarded this employee. The employee um, was trying to adopt a child. They found out the baby was born 20 weeks, 22 weeks premature. She leaves. Uh, the business owner ends up, you know, through back and forth, ends up firing her. Well, what does the mother do? What most people do, they go yeah. to social media and it exploded. No one's even heard of it. But then, you know, she does an apology post. Then she does another apology post. That's crisis That's- community communication right there. I get tagged left and right on this. So it's interesting. And then it gets picked up on the press. What's interesting now is last night, a reporter from the todayshow.com reached out, forwarded the interview that they just did with Uh the mom. And, and so that went up. And so now I'll probably, you know, I'll do a post on that today, but we're talking about things that happen in the small world. Like 20 years ago, that would just be in a, in a, in a lunchroom. Now it's on the Today Show's (laughs) website and it's everywhere. It's in every newspaper. That's our media. That's our media landscape right now. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was fascinated. You did uh, a TikTok video on the Lizzo case, yes. uh, which which Gary made reference to. Uh, in that case, you talk about a macro framework for uh, the indestructible PR framework, if you will. Own it, explain it, promise it. Can you explain how that framework works and helps in a crisis? I'm going to explain it. And then I want both of you to give me your opinion on it, if you agree <laughs> that it works. Because <laughs> uh, So I'll tell you, yes. So I, I did. I hopped in um, on the Lizzo case because 
you know, as, 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 you know, many people know is that over the summer, you know, Lizzo's backup dancers uh, sued her and she hooked up with a lawyer, a longtime kind of Hollywood fixer, like a real bulldog mm-hmm. who asked her to deny, you know, the charges. So he was looking at it from yeah. a legal perspective, but mm-hmm. when you get people, I don't want, you know, I, I don't want to put people on a certain segment, but when you get boomer and above, they're not part of that digital generation. And sometimes you wonder if they really understand the impact of reputation. Lizzo, who has a brand of living out loud and being authentic and being real and being yourself, all of a sudden is now going on the record with a statement saying that she denied everything. It was an absolute counter to her brand. That does a lot of damage to the public. So I jumped in because I happened to notice in August, I mean, that's a news desert month. Nothing happens in August, yet this story wouldn't go away. Even former President Trump's indictment came down. At the same time, it was live, but the Lizzo story even bumped off that story. It was it was absolutely fascinating, and and I recognized it was a bigger story. That's when NPR reached out to me. You know, New York Times reached out to me. I thought this is interesting now to legacy media. Like what's happening? So people are are fascinated by public relations, the machinations, what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's kind of fascinating. You know, you brought up Trump. He doesn't exactly own it, explain it, <laughs> promise it, does he? He doesn't know. Yeah. So the the theory, I, I kind of, you know, created this and worked with it back in my FEMA days. I recognized then that, that the public, your stakeholder, uh-huh. needed authenticity. So there's two types of, you know, study show, there's two types of apologies or accountability. Uh, there's authentic and then there's instrumental. Instrumental is just another way of saying strategic, which sometimes can mean mm. deny, blame, or lie yeah, yeah. or yeah, gaslight, yeah. you know, the, you know, the public. So what they want is authentic. And that's what this theory is. You got to own up to whatever it is. It doesn't mean you have to apologize. And I know a lot of people are allergic to saying, I'm sorry, or I did something wrong. And there are yeah. legal implications, but the public now, particularly online or people who've been victimized or aggrieved, they want accountability. They that you recognize how you've hurt them or how you've lied, recognize what you did. And then you can explain it. You can put it into mm-hmm. context why it happened because rarely someone is a hundred percent at fault. You know, there's always extenuating right. circumstances always. Right. And then you kind of, that's when you kind of separate yourself from the crisis. You try and, you know, you want people to step the, into your shoes and understand like, and th- have people think, Oh, I can see why they did that. And then the last step is the promise. You know, how did you change? What do you, what are you committed to doing? Yeah. What are you going to do differently? Yeah. yeah. And then the news cycle yeah. wipes you away, <laughs> you know, just like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. If there is even a news cycle anymore. Right. Oh, it's um, so fast. You don't even yeah, see it. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and it's interesting, you know, one of the things that I know lots of, uh, public relations professionals and and crisis consultants have, have wrestled with is, you know, are there good reasons not to own a crisis uh, because maybe you didn't cause the crisis or because others are trying to pull you into the crisis simply to advance their own agenda or you don't want to add credibility to something uh, by jumping into the fray and giving it uh, life, if you will. Um, how do you how do you deal with some of these close calls, if you will? 
That's that's a great question because someone just asked me that on uh, TikTok and I and I answered it. Um, you know, again, people look at a crisis as black and white, hundred percent wrong mm-hmm. or hundred percent right. You did it or you didn't do it. You know, you did it or not. Uh, but it, it, nowadays, you understand just like in life, <laughs> conflict gets messy. People both have their hands in the pot, so to speak. So this idea of having full deniability on something. It, people don't re, people don't accept that anymore because you can never have full even if you didn't if you weren't an active participant in a crisis or something happened if it was a company perhaps you did not have the right operations in place the right guidelines in place the right something happened that was because of you you know what i mean so anyone the importance is what you really do want to do is look for look for what you did wrong because you want to say something and be accountable for it because I'm sure both of you know this. There's real power in accountability because it can make you more powerful. And in a social media world, once you admit to something, the fun's <laughs> all gone. People don't want to kick you down anymore because you've admitted it or you've admitted something, and then they and then they yeah. let you go. It's like catch and release. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it, it's interesting. On the own, you asked for my feedback, Molly. So, so here we go. Yeah. No, I, I think it's the first part of this own it is the most complex part of it, right? Because there are, mm-hmm. you know, shades of culpability or accountability, whatever you want to call it. And, but however, like you look at the Boeing case, and in the first, yes. you know, a few years ago when there was a different CEO now when they had the two planes go down and kill over 400 people, their first instinct was not to own it, was to blame the airlines, the pilots, whomever they, you know, for a long time, they pointed the finger. Now, in this case, with a different plane and a different CEO, at first they started talking about suppliers, but then I think they realized they had to own it. And and yes. the day after Dave Calhoun's CEO uh, issued his his apology, so I, I think that took a lot of heat off of the company. They still have a lot of heat, believe me, and they're affecting other other companies. United's going to have a bad quarter because of Boeing, but but mm-hmm. that own it part of it. It's so hard for CEOs to, because they have investor relations people, lawyers, everybody trying to reduce risk and yes. liability. How do you overcome that? Yes. Yeah, and and that is and you're right. It's absolutely complex. Now, I remember when that first happened and I'm blanking on the CEO's name even though I know he's from Orange, <laughs> Iowa. Like Dennis I know where Muhlenberg. he's from. <laughs> Des Muhlenberg. That's right. Thank you. I remember when that happened because of course they weren't, you know, they weren't taking there was no accountability whatsoever. No one had answers and we had all of these deaths. When they finally decided to do something I thought was interesting, he filmed a video. It was like our first, the first time we saw the video apology and they posted it on their website. And he said all the right things, but it fell flat because it didn't look genuine, but also it was almost counter to what they just did, you know, in their response. And so that's why it was interesting watching Boeing now for what they were doing. Like in the beginning, yes, 
We didn't hear right. anything. And we know that there's so much more to it, right? Like, you know, the supply chain, the issues there, it is so complex that you almost can't even put it in a media statement. But then finally they came out yeah. and they did it because there, how many videos of a blown off side of a plane where people are flying in there can a, can yeah, a company yeah. stand? I mean, yeah. not that long. It's like Norfolk Southern with, yeah. you know, the, the derailment last, last February, a year yes. ago now. The visuals there demanded that they own it after they started burning the vinyl chloride and that kind of thing. It's, it, it, And that's what the point you're making is it would have been better for the CEO than he went on CNN. He should have been down at the scene talking to people, right? The visual yes. matters so much, yes. right? It does. I remember he was doing it, you know, he's doing town halls and he was talking to reporters, but yeah. he wasn't there. And interesting enough, I was just on a Facebook page, not three days ago on the East Palestine Facebook page, all of the people in town complaining and calling is out government right? officials, like people are still victims there. There's that is still an ongoing yeah. crisis. Well, definitely. just as we're doing here, crisis management has become almost like a sport. I always thought there should be like a draft Kings or something where you could, <laughs> you know, you could it. vote on <laughs> crisis, you know, management, will they do well or not? And, and, there is a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking, rear view mirror, second guessing. And usually it's about how this or that company got it wrong. Yeah. Does this oversimplify the complexities, some of this discussion? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, particularly when I'm distilling it down to a, you know, a five minute TikTok. And sometimes I'm just reading the headlines. Maybe I'll get to the first graph. I won't even get to the net graph of the story. And I'm already give, you know, giving my opinion on it. But sometimes a crisis is that simple. You see just a breakdown in leadership or you see too yeah. much caution, you know, and how they're trying to respond. Yes, it's absolutely true. And I've definitely seen because I work in this business, I get hired and I see what it's like on the other end of this type of crisis or viral, viral crisis when the blame takes off and the person who's at the center of it, the eye of the storm, they're like, mm -hmm. we didn't even do it. We, we didn't even do it, but it, it just took off from us. So I'm starting to get a lot of those. And just like one, for instance, a recent one was a business they were dealing with a celebrity and a celebrity who was in the award season. And they gave me all the information. I saw all of the evidence and these people, they were a hundred percent right. And that celebrity was wrong and that celebrity mm -hmm. destroyed them. And so mm -hmm. it is interesting, but again, the more authentic and also leveraging truth because it's I, what I tell my clients is this, what you've lost, I want to know what's at stake. What's at stake here? What can you lose? Mm -hmm. But the most important element of what you've lost is trust and you've lost trust with stakeholders. So who is, who are the stakeholders that we need to convince? Do we care if it's TikTok? Do we care mm -hmm. if it's tabloid press? Sometimes you just have to withstand yeah. the hits. You just got to take them and just do the job, you know, and just answer the questions and get it right yeah, and agree. get through it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Yeah. 
You know, in, in talking earlier about your FEMA experience with Hurricane Katrina, you commented on how the technology has changed. Something else has changed too, and that's the media itself that covers these events, that cover uh, these crises. From your vantage, how have changes in the media itself from the gutting of local journalism uh, to, you know, the dispensing of, you know, beats around certain types of industries, uh, the transition to shorter clickable articles, and then particularly business journalism. Hasn't this really changed the way crises are on one hand, both covered and then managed? Oh, Mike, that's a very good point. Yes. And question, you know, at the root of it, I always believe a good story is a good story. And it doesn't matter where you tell it. People, if there's a great story in the Wall Street Journal or the Boston Globe, people are going to read that story. So part of it is just doing good journalism or good storytelling. That is there. But yes, the industry has changed so, so much. And even in local news, uh, that's where there's a lot of struggle. Uh, you know, they just don't have the money coming in. They do not have you know, newsrooms, they don't have the august journalists that, you know, are lining, you know, the hallways. It's usually one or two editors and all young people two years out of college because they're not paying people well. So we don't also, we don't have the experience that we once had in television and newspaper newsrooms. We don't have the resources um, also, um, but so much of it is driven by social media. It's driven by digital media. Uh, reporters are following what is trending online because they need the clicks as well. Now, where there is some benefits here is like local newsrooms. Uh, when they do have a very active digital site, the ad dollars, the ad sales are actually doing well. You know, salespeople at stations and um, mm -hmm. are doing, you know, pretty, pretty well. But in terms of the the content, it's, 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 we're coming down to these almost micro moments, these micro news stories, uh, the medium of the moment now, like a couple of years ago, everything was all audio. You know, we had an app called clubhouse <laughs> and everybody was putting all their money into podcasting and audio and audio and audio. But now the trend is, you know, really in the short form video, which is another word for TikTok or reels. So news and messaging and comms needs to keep up with this. So they either need to be a content provider of that type of, you know, for that medium, either the medium mm -hmm. itself, they need to create it, or they need to provide um, content in these types of like more, think more brevity mm -hmm. of truth as opposed to long form. That's yeah, what that's not good. That's not good news for people with faces like mine though. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm going to tell you, Look at how I look, right? Like, oh, like, look how I look right now. No, people love the authentic oh, good. look. Oh my gosh, the raw. Oh my gosh, and also this will make you feel better. This will make you feel better. Like I even know it too. On TikTok, I am geriatric. <laughs> I mean, I am Gen X. I'm geriatric, but people follow seasoned yeah. people. It does not matter. My some of my 
favorite TikTokers are people who are 50 plus, honestly. There you go. So there's hope for you, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Gary. You got I another life. Molly, I another was hoping Molly would say, no, Gary, you're so handsome. You're, you're just... <laughs> you, Gary, that's what I was saying. You are hip for TikTok. Oh, my gosh. You'd be a, oh, you'd be a hit. Well, you know, one of the things that strikes me both about your approach and even the approach that I think at different points Gary and I took during our careers, I, I, I reflect a little bit at the time that I was at Person Marsteller and there was a police shooting of a black man in a major city and we were brought in in order to count, counsel um, the, the city council and the, the police chief and it became one of the very first instances where the body cam was released to the public. And, and, oh, and so your focus is about, in many ways, is the need to be transparent, the need to be authentic. And, and I think that's important. But how does a practitioner inside an organization, as they're thinking about reputation, how should they be thinking about the balance between the need to be transparent and the desire to protect an organization's reputation. Yeah, that's a great question, and it and it also comes down to a timeline, a historical timeline. So, Mike, out of curiosity, what year are we talking about that you were doing that? Twenty sixteen. Okay, I've noticed this since last April. Um, a significant change that I am that I am putting out. Like talked about my podcast and definitely on TikTok as well as it relates to this. If you follow, you know, crisis management in terms of what uh, people assume to be a, a challenge, you know, from the company, the organization, uh, the outfit, whatever it is, uh, it's that reputation piece. And if you think around, you know, 2017 Twitter, that was hashtag me too. What everyone learned was, wow, um, people can weaponize social media and bring mm -hmm. down anyone, even if it's not mm -hmm. true or not. Now, I mean, there were cases in with me too, Harvey Weinstein, you know, Bill Cosby, certainly people that deserved it. But I mean, there were people being served up where it was half truth, not true. People learned about the weaponization, you know, of social media there. And then when we get into 2020, the pandemic, and then with George Floyd, you know, when he was when he was killed and murdered in Minneapolis in late May, then we had June of 2020. At that time, I think our culture was everybody felt like, oh my gosh, now, now we have to uh, support BLM. We have to show what we're doing with diversity. Everything was DEI, DEI. But since then, if we get into the insurrection, somewhere between the insurrection and Bud Light <laughs> is where we have now polarization. And the power of polarization has changed, I believe, that landscape. So, Mike, if you were brought in for that same case back in 2016, it's mm -hmm. different now because they had to react in a more defensive stance and crouch and and, and wonder how much information yeah. do we give or not because we don't want to riot. Well, well, you know, we don't want Henderson. Well, we don't want all that. Well, in this particular instance, there actually was rioting in the streets, and that's fundamentally uh, what changed the uh, the authorities thought on releasing and you know we reached out to uh, the family's lawyer of the gentleman who was shot and th right. they said they were fine with the release and that the combination of that and the noise in the street is what transformed the situation from going to being almost mm -hmm. totally protective 
And in this particular case, the police chief was also black, even though he was responding mm -hmm. like any police chief of that era. And the yeah. uh, but when the when the tape was released, there was a chance for uh, things to ease in the city and to have uh, a different kind of conversation. Yeah. And, and really coming out of that, things were calmer, you know, p people understood the role of police and, but now look what happened with 2020. Look what happened in Minneapolis with police. And I've worked and I know people in that, yep. in that, you know, the working with chiefs, talking with them, there's fear yep. there. There's fear of, again, that public, um, you know, just that, that public uprising, you know, that happened. But in, and then police got lumped in, you know, to this category. So now again, you know, with this polarization, I'm just noticing that organizations, uh, so whether it's local state official, political companies, they're starting to push back a little bit more. There's, they're not as fear-based interesting on 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 yeah i'm pushing back on people and and i had made a tiktok about that noting you know how former president trump you know how he walloped everyone you know in the iowa caucus part of this polarization because bud light survived what they did i mean they made every communication mistake you could make the only reason why they, they kind of got through it, meaning leadership, not sales numbers. The numbers absolutely went down and they, they tanked, but the CEO still has the job because they doubled down on, on one segment of their audience. Instead of saying, you know what, we really should be more diverse and we should have more equity in, you know, who we communicate with and who we want our consumers to be. They mm. said, no, th this is it. And I, and that has carried through. And I do think that there's well, a change. I don't know. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. yeah and, and I do too. And, and the other thing that's, that, that's interesting is you take that moment uh, with George Floyd's murder in 2020 and how in the course of that next year, it really transformed how organizations and corporations dealt with diversity and equity and inclusion. And they made lots of commitments, right? And yeah. then we fast forward, you know, to this past year where we have a Supreme Court decision uh, relative to affirmative action as applied to colleges, college admissions. And then we end up with state attorney generals that want to send a signal to corporate America that you better watch it because we're watching you and we think you're being too woke. <laughs> so, 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 so now all yes. of a sudden, you know, you have, you have people who are trying to manage reputations. They kind of feel like they've been whipsawed. You know, mm -hmm. you go to one side of the equation yeah. and you're not doing enough to be conscientious and caring about people's differences and their condition in life. And then on the other, you're being told that if you pay any attention to that, uh, you're being too woke. Yes. And again, that speaks to the polarization because now what passed in Florida, now we don't need to have diversity opinions or diversity positions in colleges anymore. Now people are, all the people in 2020 who are scrambling to, to create DEI jobs. Now they're canning all those people. Yeah. They're cutting, they're cutting the role. 
that's where we are. And that's what I find so fascinating about it too, because as communicators, we need to understand it and we need to communicate to it as well. Because it's our job, whether we're working for an organization, you know, we're writing the communications, we need to understand also the thinking and the mindset of the stakeholders as well. And you could see that, Mike and Molly, coming out of Davos. Mm. You know, I I think you saw a lot of and Andrew Ross Sorkin wrote this, it's not an original thought to me, that, you know, they're hedging their bets on Trump, yeah. right? And and their, mm-hmm. uh, the pendulum, pendulum is swinging back the other way, including Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, going on Squawk Box and, in Davos and saying that Trump got a lot of things right. Yes, I know. It, this is a big, big change. And I had mentioned that on TikTok and a lot of people were pushing back and I thought, okay, all right, all right. You just check back in with me <laughs> and, and we'll, we'll talk about this again. I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, look, I mean, what, what do we have now? Like DeSantis yeah. gone. Now we have, you know, Nikki Haley, who obviously did well, you know, in New Hampshire, but I agree. I, I'm that's what, and as communicators, it's our job to keep up on that and then to understand how to communicate for that as well. Okay, Molly, so a couple more questions. I I spoke to uh, some MBA students last week about crisis management. Um, And I I got the sense that it's not a part of their normal curriculum. Let's put it that way. Smart people, really Mm -hmm. terrific, great questions. Um, But they're going to be managing these things in the future, these crises. What what advice would you give them uh, about how they should be thinking about themselves now and their, their skills. Yeah. Well, part of, you know, if I had a core mission on TikTok, I mean, that's really what it is. I love educating people, uh, you know, just about the practice and, you know, public relations and crisis management, but also the philosophy behind it, that it's not just in the communication sector. It's about how comms supports business and supports organizations. And that's why I like to extract all these stories. So whether it's a TikTok about Lizzo or I'm writing an article in Forbes about the university presidents and why a lawyer, you know, instructed them to say certain talking points and, and now they've, you know, lost position. It doesn't matter which organization you run or you work for. The public is going to determine uh, the success or the failure of that business based on how you respond to these incidences out there. So it's to say that you don't pay attention to crisis comms means you don't pay attention to your stakeholders or to your audience and or your customer and or consumers in general. And you need to do that because it, as they can bring you up. <laughs> and then they can bring you down yeah, just as quickly. Yeah, yeah. Molly, what's next for you? I understand you, you've got a book coming? Yes. Oh my gosh. There's so much going on. Well, the biggest, the biggest change is I'm now an empty nester with, you know, with my two new freshmen in uh, both in journalism schools, one at Boston University Mm -hmm. and another um, at Marquette. Yes. um, I'm now officially an empty nester, which means I can change my uh, business dynamic of not being, you know, you know, raising kids at home. So I I'm writing a book uh, really kind of about the TikTok using it as a device. But again, it's really like a public relations 
Jones mm -hmm. book. Uh, I'm also continuing, you know, with my content creation, writing for Forbes.com, social media. I'm also on Patreon, which is a community, like a membership site. So I'm bringing my podcast, which I've had, you know, for the past five years, I, you know, weekly, I've been putting out information on that. Um, I, I just needed to shift, you know, with, with uh, the environment, the media landscape right now is so media driven. So I'm bringing, folding that into this membership, if you will, where I do a lot of live chats. So I have my TikTok celebrity, you know, gossip people who love PR. So I feel like I'm a PR ambassador. Um, and then I have my clients, but I love thinking about how this industry is changing and the evolution of it and just how it's so dynamic. And I love it. So I love going on the road and talking <laughs> about it and just being the ambassador That's for all true. of it. Well, Molly, I want to say thank you to all of you. You know, the <laughs> consultant, podcaster, author, TikToker. I'm just tired. I'm tired, Mike. I don't know. You know I just, one no, they used to say, you know, you know that the, the George Bush had a long resume. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Molly, for being on The Crux. It was a great discussion. And good luck with everything, including your book. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. This was wonderful, both of you. Thanks, Gary and Mike. I love conversations with fellow communicators and two who are esteemed and seasoned as the both thank of you. you so thank you. Thanks for listening to The Crux. And make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.